National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday is at 9 a.m., we'll get together here on KYMN Radio in Northfield for around 30 minutes to discuss issues in American national security. Some weeks we'll cover broad issues. Other weeks we'll take a deep dive into areas around the world you may not have heard much about but might find interesting. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If you have topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio. I'll do my very best to find an expert to help us discuss that topic. Today's the presidential inauguration. President-elect Joe Biden begins his term at noon Eastern time, and I'm sure all of you will be tuning in to watch the event. That's a couple hours from now, so sit back and enjoy the show we have planned for you today. My guest for today's show of National Security This Week is someone who can help us understand the complex choices President-elect Biden may have to make regarding strategic deterrence, deterrence, which is a simple term often used in reference to America's nuclear arsenal and how we counter potential nuclear threats from other nations. This show today will be the first in a series of shows I plan to host this year on nuclear weapons and strategic deterrence. Bruce Moreland is a twice-retired mathematician. In his first tour of duty in the Air Force, he started as a line crew launch officer in the Minuteman Missile Force. From there, he moved on to perform analyses of ballistic missiles as a ballistics engineer, including analyzing Soviet submarine-launched ballistic missiles, as well as U.S. Titan, Minuteman, and Peacekeeper missiles. As the chief scientist for the Intelligence Directorate at Headquarters Strategic Air Command, Bruce Moreland helped staff officers and command leadership understand the complexities of nuclear war and nuclear effects, including the theory of nuclear winter. He then went on to teach at the Air Force Institute of Technology in courses that included operations research, strategic and tactical sciences, game theory, which is particularly appropriate when it comes to nuclear war, and graduate space operations. Bruce's graduate students conducted research in operations, space, and deterrence. After retiring from the Air Force, Bruce Moreland went on to work at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he designed clinical trials, analyzed genomic microarray data, and applied big data analytics on physiology data, looking for predictors of patient outcomes. Since retiring from the Mayo Clinic, Bruce Moreland has focused on public policy and decision-making. He's used his expertise in decision-making processes to serve as a volunteer with the Citizens Climate Lobby, including as chair of the Conservative Caucus and with local planning commissions as we seek to adapt to a changing world. Finally, many of you may recognize Bruce Marlin as one of the co-hosts for The Climate Show, broadcast right here on KYMN Radio at 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of every month. I will, however, bet big money that most of the audience today who's familiar with you, Bruce, did not know you had this deep expertise in nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy. I don't have many opportunities to talk about it. This is true. Well, welcome to National Security This Week. I'm really looking forward to today's show. Well, I am too. I uh, I prepared a 90-minute talk on <laughs> nuclear war for the Elder Collegium uh, 50 North, and I had a huge audience. It was it was all I could do to. Uh, I ended up with two people. <laughs> so I had 90 slides, 90 minutes, two people. It was kind of fun, but it gave me good background for today. That's so, true. That's true. There you go. Well, let's get into it. Uh, today is Inauguration Day, and it's a transition of power happening uh, in just a couple of hours from the Trump administration to the new Biden administration. Uh, as we learned from your background, you have a, uh, a, a lot of experience in, in nuclear deterrence. 
Uh, can you explain to our audience what America's nuclear triad is and how it functions? Okay, the, the nuclear triad is uh, part of our deterrent forces. When I uh, worked at headquarters Strategic Air Command, every time I went through the gate, the sign there said, uh, peace is our profession. And, of course, the gallows humor was war was just a hobby. Uh, right. But the, the fact is peace is maintained through deterrence, and I'll probably end up talking about deterrence a lot more, but for now just let me say that deterrence is when you use threats to keep from going to war. Mm -hmm. And the triad is designed to solve the problems that you have with any defensive structure. Uh, most people are familiar with the Maginot Line, and the Maginot Line was what the French put up after World War I to keep the Germans out. And it worked so well. Right. The Belgians loved it when they went through Belgium instead. Because right. <laughs> that's what you do. If there's, a, if there's a castle, you don't attack the castle. You attack the, the peasants in the village that's not inside the castle. So it's, it's called asymmetric warfare, if you will. So the triad is designed to keep from leaving a gap in our defensive structure. Mm -hmm. So we have three parts in the triad. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> we have three components to the triad. We have a land-based component, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, or in shorthand, they're called ICBMs. Mm -hmm. And then we have a sea-based, which is the SLBM, sub-launched ballistic missile. And then we have the Air, air Force, the, the bombers, if you will. Uh, and each of those legs of the triad and it's you know it performs a different function, if you will. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the land-based missiles, of course, are the fastest response because they are literally a key turn away and flight time, key turn plus flight time. So once the decision is made it, you're at war, that you're going to go to war with those, you're at war. Mm -hmm. And there's really, there's no calling them back once you turn key. You know, there's all kinds of ups and downs to the missiles. They're very secure. They're very safe. Uh, they're hard to attack because you need really good targets targeted weapons to take them out precision targeting precision yeah. targeting in fact i once sat at the vice sinks desk explaining to him how cep how the accuracy of a target of a missile and the hardness of the target work together to decide what the probability of a kill was okay uh, so it's it's something i spent a lot of time thinking about and working on and you use the term sink that's commander-in-chief commander-in-chief so, yeah. so i was at the vice commander-in-chiefs the vice sink yes <laughs> Uh, sometimes we forget acronyms are not common language, are they? Um, anyway, so the land-based uh, fill that role. Then the sea-based are more, they're more survivable, survivable in some sense because they're dispersed and floating around in the ocean someplace in a very secret location. Right. And um, that means that they, they give up. A little bit of accuracy, although not as much as we might have thought. The early ones, of course, did give up sure. a lot of accuracy. And response time, because it was harder to get a message to them, took a little bit longer. And uh, so they f fulfill a different role in in our Maginot line, if you will. They're sure. a different front. And then, of course, the bombers represent the slowest response, in a way, because of their flight time. Right. Which is a good thing. As long as they don't go past their fail-safe point, and anybody who's seen the movie Fail-Safe knows what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about there is there's a point where once the bomber reaches it, it will not accept recall orders. And that's because as soon as you get past, you know, as soon as you get past some point, 
where you're, you might be being talked to by the Russians, if you will, if they're the targeted country, um, you can't afford to have your bomber crews wondering if they're still acting, acting on valid orders. So, sure. yeah. so in, in any case, so the bombers take a long time to get there. They're probably not as, uh, as likely to get to their target as an ICBM or an SLBM, the mm-hmm. sub-launch ballistic missile or the intercontinental. So they have that weakness, but they do have the advantage that they represent something that you can do that doesn't mean you have to go to war. So you can scramble. You know, it's, it's like pulling out your sword a little ways and saying, right. are you sure you want to continue this arrogant conversation? <laughs> right, right, yeah. So anyway, right now... Our, our, when I was in the service, the land forces were huge. We had a thousand ICBMs plus fifty-two Titans. Okay. Uh, the Titan was the earliest of the ICBMs. It was liquid, you know, fuel and uh, had a big warhead, a big bang. There weren't very many of them. I was involved in targeting them for a while. It was pretty interesting work. And then we used to, we built a, a new weapon called the Mini, uh, the Peacekeeper. But although we, I was involved in the analysis on that, we only deployed a few of them, and, a, and they've gone away. So we're back to 400 Minuteman three with 1,200 weapons on them, and those are what are called multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles, MIRVs. Mm-hmm. And that just means that the rocket goes up, and it can put down those three weapons on three different targets within an ellipse, if you will, that represents the ability to carry fuel to retarget. So it's not like they can hit everywhere, but if they were hitting a missile field, for example, they could hit three different missiles. So to be clear, on a on a ballistic <laughs> missile trajectory, once it launches and it's it's established its trajectory, it it's just sort of on a, uh, a kind of on a glide as it reenters uh, the Earth's atmosphere mm-hmm. as an ICBM. So the warheads have to come down relatively within that. Uh, we call that it drop f- zone. we call it a, a footprint. Footprint, there you go. The footprint of the missile was, and I actually wrote a software package on a handheld calculator that would estimate how much fuel it took to retarget the Minuteman 3 so that the Airborne Command Post people could look at the calculator and figure out quickly whether they could retarget a missile the way they wanted to. Okay. And that was important because it took 45 minutes for the hardware on the ground to do that calculation. They could do it in two minutes on my calculator. All right. It was kind of a fun project. Right, right. <laughs> but in any case, <clears throat> so the, the land represents that. On the sea, we have the Ohio-class boats, which have 14 to 20 Tridents. And the Trident is the Navy's equivalent to the Miniman Three. It carries up to, uh, I think, six warheads, depending on the, the loadout. Mm-hmm. So there's those weapons. Those are also MIRVs, multiple independently retargetable, uh, smaller footprint, uh, slightly lesser range, and they're pretty accurate. And they have a small warhead, so they can hit multiple targets. Yeah. They're, they're a part of the deterrent package that provide. Remember I said the land base has some advantage. The sea base has another advantage. And then, of course, we have... The B-52 Stratofortress and B-2 Spirit uh, making up that. B-2 Spirit, you know what that is? The, the, the flying wing, right? The flying wing, the yeah. stealth. Yeah. The, the, you know, everybody loves the word stealth. In fact, I have a red stealth sitting in my garage at home right now. Fair An enough. old one, trust me. So those are, are those air-launched uh, cruise missiles that they uh, release then? Uh, For the most part, yes. Okay. They're going to be launching a cruise missile or a—I mean— in the old days, they used to have gravity bombs, which yeah. meant that they had a very specific maneuver because 
when you you could actually lob that bomb by doing an elevation and and letting it go while you're climbing out, and yeah. then that gave made it easier to get away. Right. Uh, the B-29 Enola Gay and the sister ship that dropped the two bombs in in Japan actually just flew straight and but they had very you know small weapons mm-hmm. and a long fall time sure so they they were able to get far enough away that they could sustain you know the impact of the blast wave as it were and, and even back then with a relatively small yield on those two uh, atomic devices it was still uh, tremendous uh, turbulence created for those yep. those air crews yep yep yeah and and they were worried, you know. They were, they were, that was because that was only the third one or the second and third one to be detonated. Right. And the first one was on a tower. Right. And so it was, yeah. you know. Interestingly, the, there were two designs. Uh, well, we don't want to go into that too far, but there were two designs back then. There was one that was like a cannon barrel, and you just rammed the two pieces together. Mm-hmm. And the other one was a sphere, and you imploded it. Right. The implosion device was the more complicated by far. By far, yeah, and yet I think that was the one that we dropped first was the more complicated one, yeah. and then we dropped the thin boy, which was the cheap and easy one. Right, right. So that's the trident, the the deterrent, uh, the triad, mm-hmm. and the idea is, if there's a breakthrough in breakthrough in technology that allows you to cut off one of those legs, mm-hmm. the other two legs still provide some deterrence, and. When would you learn about that? Chances are that if you ever went to war, it would be when you'd learn that one of those was vulnerable because they would all of a sudden disappear. Right. You know, and so if the Soviets had a way to track our subs and wipe them out, first of all, we wouldn't know right away because they're, they're pretty quiet and they're not telling everybody where they are all the time. Right. And so that was part of the nerve-wracking, you know. Mm-hmm. And the ICBMs are, have the advantage of, the ground-based, land-based ones, that when you attack them, it's pretty clear that you're under attack. Right. And you have some warning time, and that goes back to some of the stuff I did with the Soviet subs. Right. Another show. (laughs) And and we should be clear here as we're discussing this topic. this is a this is a deadly serious topic, uh, frankly. I mean, it has, uh, it's one of the few things that uh, with a major nuclear exchange, uh, that's an existential threat to the future of humanity and everything else on the planet. Uh, which is the nuclear winter topic that uh, that you looked into. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, in fact, uh, that's what mutual assured destruction grew out of was deterrence theory. Yeah. And I was right in the – was, that was when I was chief scientist, mm-hmm. and I was explaining what was going on, and that was my job. It wasn't to do the science. It was to explain it. Right. And it was really fascinating to watch. And yeah. Do you want me to talk more about that now, or do you want to save that? Well, we can talk about that now. Yeah, it's a good topic to discuss. Okay, so here's what happens. <clears throat> You've got a nuclear war th- planning going on, and in about 62, they came up with the idea of mutual assured destruction. And what it was was, early in the in the Cold War, it was real conceivable that we could have a, a nuclear war and then press on with a regular war afterwards to finish it off because mm-hmm. nuclear war was going to be you know, basically city killing. And to understand that, I'd have to take you back to World War II and maybe back to the Civil War and Sherman and what he did mm-hmm. because war had developed in the, the, the Europeans had developed a form of warfare that could almost be compared to the Native American form where you knew that you didn't really want to wipe people out. You just wanted to capture land and, you know, maybe take a few uh, prisoners for slaves and things like that. So 
fighting wars like that is different than fighting wars the way the Europeans were fighting them. Mm-hmm. And so they got to be very set-piece type wars. That's why one of the first things we learned in our history was that the Americans fought from behind trees and the Brits thought that was unfair. Right. Well, in World War II, the Brits started to develop the idea of, of attacking not the soldiers but the infrastructure behind the soldiers, right. supply lines. And the ultimate place to attack a supply line is at the factory. Because that's where the you know it's the it's exposed, it's big, it's you know it's got so, a lot of workers. So British Bomber Command decides they're going to go after strategic bombing targets during strategic, World War II. Strategic bombing targets, yes. And I've read the the in my professional capacity, I read a lot of those reports mm-hmm. about strategic bombardment. There's still people that question whether the uh, the idea you know the Germans weren't really crushed by strategic bombardment, or were they? You know, yeah. did, did it break their morale? Well, the experience in London was it actually improved morale. Mm-hmm. Not improved it, but it, it didn't sink into despair. It more rose up into outrage, we're going to fight back. Right. And so, you know, when we bombed, when the Brits bombed Dresden, some of the other firebombing they did, mm-hmm. uh, they were targeting the population, the workers, right. as a legitimate target in war. And there's some real questions about that because what I was saying was the the, the set piece wars, the Napoleonic style, mm-hmm. they didn't they they ravaged the you know the countryside, but not the same way that just flattening a city with firebombs does. Sure. And uh, so there's all kinds of moral moral arguments about good war, bad war, and is, is strategic bombardment allowed mm-hmm. or is it necessary? And in the 50s, a nuclear war would have been a lot of flashbangs, and then we'd have been you know set back. As Einstein said, he didn't know what the third world, who would, how the third world war was going to be fought, but he knew the fourth one would be fought with sticks and stones. Yeah, because he he recognized the power. Sure. And by the '60s, everybody recognized the power. Yeah. And so we switched over to this mutual assured destruction model. And, and, and I think part of that too is there was a recognition that the Soviets had caught up to us in their ability to deliver. Uh, nuclear weapons through ICBMs that could actually reach the United States by that point. Right, and there's nothing like uh, mutual and mutual assured destruction no. to to clarify the mind, and so that's what we did. And am I running up against the clock? Let me, let me know if I'm running up against the clock because I'm about to go into nuclear winter. Well, let, let's hold off on on nuclear winter. Maybe we can t- touch on that at the end because there's a, there are a lot of topics I'd like to bring up today that I think are are pretty important. Uh, so both the Obama administration and the Trump administration carried out some pretty detailed studies of America's nuclear arsenal. Uh, those studies uh, resulted in a lot of debate about how should we modernize our, our nuclear arsenal because a lot of the stuff that we have was built back in the 80s uh, that's still active today. And whether or not even the triad is still needed. Uh, and some would ask why, you, why ever would you want to keep ICBMs uh, in fixed silo locations in the Midwest? Uh, kind of in the heart of the country, uh, potentially inviting a massive nuclear strike against America's heartland uh, if we ever got into an exchange with either Russia or, or China. So if you were advising President Biden on developing a new nuclear uh, deterrence approach, what would you tell him about the triad? Would you recommend he keep it or uh, adjust it in some way? Um, I'm a conservative, which means that I wear both a belt and suspenders. <laughs> okay. Okay, so my inclination is to keep the triad <clears throat> partly just for the signal that it sends, which is we don't want you to try and... Re- Do you remember? There was a thing called Star Wars, mm-hmm. derogatory. I was 
again, explaining all this stuff as part of the Strategic Defense Initiative. Yeah. SDI was what we called it. Right. And a lot of the pushback on that whole idea was, no, no, mutual assured destruction, which is our handshake, if you will, agreement that how we're going to fight war, Mm -hmm. uh, requires that we not be able to defend against it. That's the whole point about nuclear weapons is there's no defense against an ICBM, for example. Well, SDI was going to solve that problem. Sure. And uh, that's that's a question of policy. And, and what what I would recommend is I would recommend keeping the triad for the foreseeable future. Okay. In part because particularly the SLBMs, that's all the Brits and French have. Right. They, they have their own submarine launch ballistic missiles, um, and that's often a surprise to people. Yeah. <laughs> they, and the Russians have been advancing uh, in that area uh, in their fleet and uh, the Chinese as well. Right. And in fact, a sublaunch ballistic missile is a fairly cheap deterrent, yeah. because uh, relative to keeping a land force <clears throat> or a, a bomber force. So yeah, I would. So I would recommend keeping the triad until the the problem we have is the 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 starry eyed dreamer in me says we'll just do away with nuclear weapons, but the shovel in my hand, boots on my feet, grunt in me says no. <laughs> You're never going to get rid of them all. So no, that's a challenge. Even with the uh, the, the the international treaties that were adopted uh, decades ago, uh, with the effort to try and get rid of nuclear weapons on a global basis, that uh, that has not happened. Uh, right. Yeah. And and when I if when I gave my talk, I'd show you a really nice graph that shows how those peaked, and then started to drop precipitously, and that has to do with the nuclear winter problem. Yeah. So. Uh, so as a quick audience uh, reminder, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're speaking with Bruce Moreland, who served a career in the U.S. Air Force with a specialization in nuclear weapons. Uh, Bruce, can you tell us a little bit more about the nuclear arsenals that are held right now by nations around the world? Maybe give us an idea of how many nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear warheads, and, and delivery mechanisms uh, that are used by Russia, China, North Korea, and other members of the nuclear club. Sure. I uh, I have some data that I looked up for my talk, and it, it, it's pretty interesting. The, uh, the biggest threats, of course, are the biggest users, if you will, of nuclear weapons. Uh, the United States has 4,700 and some, and that was in 2014, so that, that was the data available then. The Russians are up at about 4,300. Uh, we're pretty sure that the French have like 300. The the Brits have, let me see, 225. China's up in the 250. So China has a fair number. Mm-hmm. And it, Pakistan and, and India are really interesting. Pakistan's 120 and India's 110. And why do you think I think those are interesting numbers? Well, it's a, there's a parity there. Uh, there's an interest in, interesting difference in how they approach their use of nuclear weapons, what they would use them to do in mm-hmm. case of conflict with each other. And the interesting thing is that from an Indian perspective, Pakistan is not the threat. It's actually China is the big threat for them strategically. Well, you know, when, when we were growing up, uh, as Russia and the U.S. were arming up, China was always the third card. Right. And we always talked about playing the China card mm-hmm. as part of your strategy. In other words, by threatening China, you threaten Russia indirectly because Russia is threatened and threatening to China. So this is, this is the, the gunfight, if you will, at the end of the good, the bad, and the right. ugly. Right. Remember that? Yep. It's Absolutely. called a truel. I used to teach game theory, and truel is a three-way duel. And the, the question is, if you 
I, I won't get into the math of it, but it's a lot of fun to think about. But it's also exactly what you said. India and Pakistan don't play in the absence. India and Pakistan don't play in the absence of China. Right. The same way they do with China sitting there. So you have to pick your strange, you have to pick your friends as, as you find them, I guess. Right. So in any case, the re- another reason they're interesting is they have enough weapons to end the world. It turns out that the nuclear winter argument doesn't require thousands of weapons. And so I, and I'm going to shock the audience a little bit, but this is what I told somebody when they asked me about that. They said, well, what, what, what would happen? And I said, well, if, nu- if, China, if uh, Pakistan and India used their nukes on each other, it wouldn't be the end of the world the way nuclear winter was. It would be more of a nuclear autumn. Mm-hmm. And by a nuclear autumn, maybe... Three billion people would starve in the next year or two as the climate started to try and come back from this event. Yeah, and it's always this is kind of uh, when you work on these numbers all the time, mm-hmm. you forget sometimes that other people don't think in terms of billions of people dying of starvation. Right, and it's it's sobering to right. realize that that's what the kind of thinking that goes through your mind when you're working on these numbers. And I'll be honest with you, when I when I decided that I wanted to do this show topic today on Inauguration Day, it was because of the deadly serious nature of, of this uh, of this issue. And uh, I've been following over the last few weeks a lot of discussions in uh, the defense news uh, articles and whatnot that are out there talking about you know, what should the Biden administration do to try and get us back on track uh, in some of these areas of, uh, of treaties and, and reducing the threat of uh, nuclear exchanges, not only for the United States, but globally? Because we do have these concerns about uh, tensions between Pakistan and India and, and elsewhere. So yeah. some other some other weapons you might want to hear about. Um, Israel has about 80 weapons, we think. We think, right. We think. <clears throat> they're very secretive about their weapons because they're kind of surrounded by a lot of people that right. are not happy with them. So yeah. if, if Trump's administration is at, was actually successful in anything, one of the things they were successful in was stirring the pot in the Middle East without creating a war there. Now, whether they laid the foundation for a war in four or five years, we'll see. Right. But I'm I'm hoping that, to a certain extent, that what happened in the Middle East during the last four years represents somebody basically coming into the room, taking away the shotguns, and then walking out again. And all of a sudden, the people in the room have to argue with each other using a different method because some of the issues have been resolved. Mm -hmm. You know, the capital, I mean, the U.S. uh, diplomatic move to Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. that's done. And I can't imagine anybody wanting to go back. it broke. It may have helped some of the nations in that area break their link to the terrorists, mm-hmm. because they can say, "Well, you know, that's over. That's done. Let's talk about other issues." So sure. we'll see. It's yep. it's a scary way to do diplomacy, though. I have to say, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, so speaking of uh, some of the some of the big challenges that the that the Biden administration faces, and and frankly, this goes back to the top issue that the Obama administration handed off to the Trump administration, uh, this was President Obama's biggest concern, is, is North Korea. Uh, a few years ago, I mean, it, it, things were looking pretty dire uh, in our relationship with North Korea. Uh, where do you think things stand today? 
Well, no- North Korea has uh, ballistic missiles. The question is whether they can put a warhead on it. Uh, that's a trickier thing than you think. Putting just a yeah. dead weight on it and launching it is one thing. Yeah, they have not demonstrated the complete cycle of a launch to detonation with a uh, with an accurate uh, CEP, as you right. mentioned earlier. Right. Um, on the other hand, the Germans did an awful lot with V-2s, and they didn't know which county they were going to land in, but they lobbed them over there anyway with little warheads. They were only like a... A thousand pounder, two thousand pounder, uh, which is nothing compared to a nuke. Of course, nukes are much, 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 much bigger, mm-hmm. orders of magnitude bigger. But the, so they haven't demonstrated that. And reentry is a non-trivial part because those things come in at velocities they heat up. You know, we've all seen what happened to the space shuttle when it yeah. came apart. So it's non-trivial to get stuff through. Um, but it's the threat that's there that makes it uh, a deterrent. It it doesn't deter us, though. In some sense, we never cared whether they had nukes because we didn't think they would use them on us. I think for the North Koreans, it's more a matter of at least we have one. Mm-hmm. It's a bargaining chip, It's probably. a bargaining chip, and it's a it's a medal that you can put on your chest and puff yourself up when sure. you're out, you know, talking to your neighbors and say, yeah, I've got them too, you know. Yeah, I've had I've had lots of conversations with people about Kim Jong Un, and uh, you know what 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 do we think he he thinks he's getting by creating a nuclear force? And mm-hmm. uh, fr- from my perspective, it's really more of a bargaining chip. It's a it's a strength that uh, talks about the his regime enduring because you don't generally want to attack a country that has nuclear weapons. Right. Uh, but I don't think anybody who thinks clearly about national security actually believes Kim Jong-un is going to fire missiles at the United States. Right. Because that, that's his letter of resignation to the world. That's exactly He's right. done. Yeah, he'll right? be done. Yeah. And uh, as it sits, like I said, he's it gives him something to point to. Uh, it's like the May Day parades in Moscow. You know, sometimes you have to have the parade not because of the people that you're going to be shooting at, but because of the people who are helping you maintain that force. You sure. want to give them something to be proud of. Internal political consumption. Internal, internal yeah. political consumption. Political theater, as it were. Right. So speaking of that, let's let's move to Iran. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've heard about that threat of Iranian nuclear weapons for a number of years. The Iranians have uh, have now stated they are willing to uh, forego some of the agreements they adhered to at the JCPOA and start re- refining uh, or enriching uranium again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Trump administration pulled the Americans out of that uh, joint comprehensive agreement. Yep. Uh, could you explain what that agreement was and uh, why President Trump chose to pull us out? Well, the original agreement was designed to control how much uranium processing the Iranians could do, uranium being the important component in a fission bomb. Uh, the When you get uranium to a certain concentration, it's useful in power plants, but you have to go quite a bit further to make it useful in a nuclear weapon. And you probably remember hearing of centrifuges. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with uranium is it comes in uranium-238, uranium-235, uranium-239. Only one of those is useful, and each of those numbers that I represent is the molecular weight of one atom of uranium. So how do you separate things that weigh different amounts? Well, you spin them in a centrifuge, and gravity or the centripetal force separates it for you. And uh, another way is you can do it is is with uh, evaporation. You can bind it, but then you've got to unbind it, and there's a lot of issues with that. So the centrifuges has always been the way we go uh, for big for big production. And they were held back from producing weapons-grade uranium by the treaty. 
And the problem was they were developing, it appeared they were developing those centrifuge systems, those banks of centrifuges, to be able to quickly flip them over to produce the weapons-grade uranium. And that was a concern. And that was the breakout uh, concept, right? Right, the breakout concept that they could flip a switch and within a month have enough depleted or enough uranium to actually construct a weapon. And the it appeared that they were violating the rules behind that and weren't letting us look enough and do enough inspections and things. So the the only thing worse than a, 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 a than having no solution to a problem is having a bad solution that you think is working mm. because then you don't keep looking. Yeah. And so the Trump administration decided that the treaty was not providing enough safeguards and pulled out of it. Whether the Iranians have done anything different because of that, you know, there's some reports that they are ramping up and there's some that they aren't. The Iranians have the same problem with nukes that the Koreans have, though. They really can't use them. Right. The only place they would use them would be Iran. I mean, Israel. Israel has got them outgunned and Israel is upwind. Mm Mm-hmm. So anything they drop in Israel is going to come toward them in terms of fallout patterns. Right. And I've, I've got picture. I used to do fallout analysis. In fact, over a beer sometime, I'll have to tell you a story about that. And, and we should say that uh, in the confirmation hearings that just started yesterday in the Senate uh, for for uh, for SecDef, SecState, and uh, Director of National Intelligence, all three of uh, Biden's designees have talked about the fact that uh, renegotiated JCOP, JCPOA should should absolutely include the ballistic missile component part of that, which was not included in the beginning, and that's the delivery mechanism that right. the Iranians would have to use if they right. ever developed a bomb. If they ever developed one. Well, you have to be careful about that because depend- well, you could smuggle it in. Hezbollah could do their jo- do the job for them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a concern. You're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're speaking with Bruce Moreland, who served a career in the U.S. Air Force with a specialization in nuclear weapons. A number of the treaties that have been in place uh, between the U.S. and Russia for many years have now lapsed, Bruce. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about those treaties and what they did to reduce tensions and the threat of nuclear war, and, and why the United States has chosen to let those treaties lapse? Well, the the earliest efforts were the Strategic Arms Limitations Talks, uh, SALT treaties, SALT I and SALT II, and those started back in the 70s and expired in the 80s, roughly, as new treaties came online. And they were designed to limit the amount of forces. The the realization was we already had enough. We didn't need any more. And so let's limit the the forces before we climb even higher up this cliff that we don't want to be on. I seem to recall back then we were in the pushing, was it 15,000 warheads in the U.S. alone, something like that? That looks about right, 15,000. Well, as high as 40,000 between the two of us. Right, between us and the Soviet Union. Right. So there were a lot of weapons there. And so the SALT talks were designed to let's go ahead and you know quit buying these we don't need any more uh and that's remember that's inside the umbrella of mutual assured destruction right now in 1980 i was busily drawing graphs on the board explaining game theory to anybody at the staff that needed to understand this because the nuclear winter concept was brought out Mm -hmm. and interestingly they were developing these climate models so that they could investigate global warming and somebody said, well, what if we have a nuclear war? What does that do to our weather? 
And I have a picture that shows this scientist looking at a graph, and the temperature drops by 60 degrees centigrade over about two weeks after a nuclear exchange. And 60 degrees centigrade is enough to pretty much... It'll certainly kill a corn crop, that's for darn sure. Oh, yeah. And it takes a long time, like 180 days, about a half a year, to even come up to where you can be outside safely. I mean, and that's a nuclear winter. Mm -hmm. And so I like to, you know, in part, the next series of treaties seem to be addressing that problem. The strategic arms reduction talks were designed to reduce our arsenals. And remember I said that the U.S. has about 4,700 and the Russians have about 4,300 warheads. That's quite a reduction from the 40,000 that we saw. Yeah. And it represents kind of the impact of the START treaties, the arms reduction treaties. And that was an, as a result of this fear of nuclear winter. Mm-hmm. And the nuclear autumn is the idea that we can still have a bad day if even Iran, I mean, Pakistan and India go to war. So in any case, the SALT treaties expired and were replaced by the START treaties. And the, the START treaties have been expired. There's supposed to be a new START treaty, but uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't been finished yet. And I think that was partly because the last administration didn't work it very well, didn't work on that issue. So so we've also had uh, Open Skies has lapsed. Yep, Can you tell us sky. a little bit about that? Open Skies was that you were allowed to, to see the other guy's forces. And, and you know, we, we it was a recognition that satellite observations. Originally, it, it allowed overflights with, with airplanes. Uh, kind of became moot once we started using satellites for most of that, although we stu- still do have overflight airplanes at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that <clears throat> was designed... If I should have brought it with me. I have a coffee cup at home that has a bunch of lovely pine trees on it, and if you fill it with a hot liquid, the pine trees disappear to reveal a Soviet SS-20 uh, mobile launcher. Okay, And I got that at the gift shop at the CIA. I think it was a gift shop in Pentagon or the uh, CIA. Yeah. So in any case, the open skies was about being able to see each other. Um, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty uh, was about trying to get rid of a class of weapons that were particularly dangerous to the European balance. Right. The the short, they were medium range or intermediate range, like, that were useful mostly for fighting a war in Europe. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to go from from mainland to mainland but they were going to be a trigger, if you will, and a possible problem. So sure. they did away with those forces. Yeah. So. And, and even to a certain extent, uh, we we decided to get rid of or pull out of the uh, the uh, ABM treaty some time ago. Right. Yeah. And remember what I said about deterrence is part of the thing about deterrence is mutual assured destruction right. and anything that threatens to reduce the mutual in that is destabilizing. Yeah. So the ABM treaty was designed to keep us from developing uh, destabilizing weapon systems. So all that said, I'm going to put you on the spot here, and I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take you, a conservative, I'm going to put you in the Biden administration advising the new president on, uh, on this approach. What, what kind of new treaties uh, would you recommend to him uh, that we pursue to reduce the threat of nuclear war? I think that the first thing I would work on is I I, I would say I I hate to say this but I think that the US and Russia and the major nuclear powers the the top five if you will kind of need to tell everybody else to get out of the pool Mm. you're not allowed to have them 
You can't have them. You can't develop them. And if we think you're developing them, we will take the next steps and then take those next steps. So it's really the big five on the national or on the uh, UN UN uh, Security Council uh, with the veto authority, right? And tell everybody else you're getting out of the pool. Yep, everybody yeah. else out of the pool. And 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 the the problem is, if you're going to do that, you have to know why they wanted to be in the pool in the first place. Right. Uh, North Korea wants to be in the pool for public prestige or for more for prestige than for the fact that they're going to actually use them. So you can figure out something that will let them develop prestige without having to have a nuclear weapon to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, what, I don't know what you can do with the Israelis. Yeah. Uh, you've done something by helping defuse the Middle East a little bit, but you need to carry that forward in a way. And, and part of, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, you have to be willing to throw some people out of the pool that don't want to leave. Yeah. And, you know, there's some thought that uh, Ukraine might have some weapons that they managed to keep when the Russians left. Hard to know. <laughs> Hard to know. And those are the most dangerous weapons. Yeah. By far. Yeah. Uh, how do I convince, you know, Israel? I don't know. How do I convince India and Pakistan? Well, why do they need the weapons? Why do they think they need the weapons? And what am I willing to promise? And how do I promise it? <clears throat> do you know why we had soldiers in the fold of gap in Europe during the Cold War? Why we had them there? Well, it's a commitment to our European allies. Yeah, it was a signal. <laughs> yep. It was a flag. Yeah, and they were a tripwire. Right. If they got attacked, you knew the war was on. Right. And uh, that I, I that's the thing. You know, what do we do? What do we offer the? Do we put troops in Pakistan and India and say if these guys get attacked, we'll know there's a war on and we'll stop it? Right. I don't know. I don't know what we. I mean, these are. There's a reason why these are hard, and it, it, there's a reason why people are afraid of the Biden administration in a way going in, because they're afraid that he represents a return to the '70s mm-hmm. or '80s uh, in terms of internationalism, in terms of uh, interfering in foreign countries. But it's kind of like climate change. Sometimes you got to interfere because what they're doing is too dangerous to you. Even though nobody thinks about it that often, it's more of a danger to you. It's more of a danger to the U.S. that India and Pakistan have weapons than it is to either one of them. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, they're just... Right. And like with Israel, there's enough hate there in the Middle East between Israel and Iran to, they don't, you know, they're going to, we can't afford to have them armed with those weapons. Yeah, and in fact, like I was saying, the uh, the confirmation hearings yesterday, it was a clear signal from the incoming Biden administration that there is no way they're going to allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons. There's just no way. Right. So whatever it's going to take to make sure they stay out of the pool uh, is probably going to happen. I hope people are listening to those confirmation hearings because oh, it's fascinating. It is. It is. And I'm afraid if you listen to the pundit summaries, they usually focus on... You miss. You miss a lot. You miss a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the interesting things is that, you know, technology is always advancing. And unfortunately, uh, technology also advances in this area of, uh, of creating even more lethal weapons systems. Uh, and, and the latest thing that's uh, kind of coming on uh, that I've been paying attention to is something called hypersonic weapons. Uh, and, and they may replace ballistic missile technology, in fact, uh, with their ability to strike much more rapidly and, and not have to follow 
necessarily this ballistic missile course that uh, nations have relied on so, so for so long for delivering uh, nuclear weapons. How do you see the hypersonic missile technology development impacting this idea of strategic deterrence, uh, missile defense, and global stability as a whole? Well, this, this is a game yeah, theory question. Game for theory you, right? question. It is indeed because I go back to what role each of the t- members of the triad plays. The the first exposure I had to this with hypersonic weapons was uh, was similar to what the Russians developed, which is a it's a hypersonic it's a maneuvering reentry vehicle. Mm-hmm. So it still has a ballistic component. So you still have, uh, as most people are aware, we can detect a missile launch when it occurs. We can track where it's going to go. I used to be involved in this. Uh, we can predict where it's going to hit. And you have, depending on the range, maybe 30 minutes of warning, mm-hmm. which by the time you go through the report to the president and stuff, you've only got a 15-minute decision window. But that's still, you have a decision window. Yeah. The problem with the hypersonics is if they come in low and fast, uh, like a cruise missile, in other words, they're hypersonic the whole way and they're not going ballistic, so the question will be whether they have a big enough flame signature to be detected. And, of course, we know that stealth bombers and stealth fighters have solved that problem. The question will be, can you solve that problem when the object itself is glowing? And that might be the the limiter. It may be, yeah, you can get there in 15 minutes, but I know you're traveling the whole 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it may take longer than that, even even at hypersonic velocities, to hit important targets. The problem is... We've got Washington right on the coast. Right. We've got New York right on the coast. So you're you, a you don't need the hypersonic. You know, even a standard cruise missile, you wouldn't have any warning time. Mm-hmm. The only time you would need the hypersonic is if you were traveling to like Toledo or Cleveland or Omaha or places like that. Mm-hmm. But that's a long way to travel hypersonic. A lot right. of fuel. Right. And it's it's easy to do that when you throw it ballistically, up you know three or four hundred miles and let it fall back in. With all that nice velocity, it's quite another thing to push through the atmosphere the whole time. Yeah. So I'll be following closely in some sense if those hypersonic cruise missiles have the range. Uh, then you're going to have a problem because the old school was to intercept them. Right. Like they did the V the V1s, they would intercept with a Spitfire back in World War One mm-hmm. or two. These those were the earliest cruise missiles, and they just go out and tip them over with a wingtip, a nudge. Just for fun, Knock I guess. Down, yeah. Knock them down. So. Yeah. so we just have a, a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, are there any final points that you would like to make uh, regarding nuclear weapons or, or uh, n- nuclear deterrence, strategic deterrence, uh, before we uh, finish off today? Mm, I, I would just mention that the, cons- society, the concerned scientists have their clock set at 100 seconds to midnight. And that's been going for quite a while where they keep track of how close they think we are to nuclear war. Um, the other thing I'm going to, so it's closer than it's been for a while. And I don't know how long it will take them to decide that we've softened up a little bit on that. So it's not like in the fifties when we were, I mean, I, did you, did you have a bomb shelter in your backyard? We did not at my house. No, I had one at my house. It was, it was the well pit. And my dad said, if we have to, that's where we'll hide out for a while. So I grew up, you know, duck and cover. Mm-hmm. I ducked and covered under my chair. Uh, as part of a drill for nuclear war. And uh, so I'm, I'm I'm worried about it in some sense because I'm aware of it. Yeah. But I'm also aware of other threats to our security. And if you look at what the DOD is worried about, the top things on their list, as much as nuclear war worries them, the top things on their list are things like national debt, yeah. 
and uh, climate change. That's right. And that's why I go out as a conservative and try and educate on global warming. I always say global warming comes first, and I can do that on a whiteboard to eighth graders. I've done it. Yeah. It was fun. Uh, climate, climate change is the political side of global warming, and it's the things you can point to that say, yes, it's happening yeah. uh, the way we predicted it would. And uh, so I've got, I'm worried about that, and I'm also worried about the debt. Yeah. So these are things that I, we can't just throw them under the bus as we worry about nuclear war, but we have to do everything. We have, it's, sure. it's like juggling. We've got these chainsaws running and juggling, and we just can't stop juggling one of them because we don't want to. Right, and and part of that challenge is, uh, you know, we talk about if we maintain the nuclear triad and we upgrade it uh, to where a lot of people think we should be today, that's about $100 billion over 10 years uh, just on the nuclear triad yeah. to get it up to speed. Well, that's, if we are concerned about the debt, uh, that's another <laughs> $100 billion, uh, that we go into debt. Yeah. Uh, yep. Maybe more, frankly. Probably Could be a lot more. more. Yeah, very easily. Well, I think that that's going to have to call it uh, call it for the show today, Bruce. Sure. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for being our guest on National Security this week, yeah. uh, folks. We'll be back next Wednesday, January twenty seventh at nine a.m. with another edition of National Security this week. I'm John Olson, and I'm your host, and we're broadcasting from KYMN Radio in Northfield on AM ten eighty and FM ninety five point one. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday at nine a.m. Have a fantastic day and a great finish to your week.